Friday, everyone. We're happy to bring you the sixth episode of About South. And this week, we're talking about the Native South with Leanne Howe and Kirsten Squint. We were able to have this conversation when we attended the Faulkner and Yakna Batafa Conference in Oxford, Mississippi this summer. This year's topic was on Faulkner and the Native South. We were delighted to get the chance to sit down with Professor Howe and Professor Squint and discuss their work and what we might mean by something now called the Native South. Choctaw author Leanne Howe is the Edson Distinguished Professor at the University of Georgia. She has won numerous awards, including the Lifetime Achievement Award by the Native Writers Circle of the Americas. And in 2014, she received the Modern Language Association inaugural prize for studies in Native American literatures, cultures, and languages for her book, Chalk Talking on Other Realities. Her books also include 2001 Shellshaker, 2005's Evidence of Red, Miko King's An Indian Baseball Story in 2007, and the aforementioned Chalk Talking on Other Realities, which was released in 2013. Kirsten Squint is a professor at High Point University where she teaches courses in Native American literatures and Southern literatures. She is the leading scholar on Leanne Howe's work, and she's currently completing a book about this topic. Again, it was our real privilege to sit down and talk to both of them during the Faulkner and Yachtnam Batafa conference, and we're excited to bring you this conversation today. excited to be here with you guys in Oxford, Mississippi. We are at the Faulkner and Yachtna Batafa conference, which this year is focusing on Faulkner and Yachtna Batafa and the Native South, which is probably going to inform our conversation in some ways. But I think what we want to do today is really focus on this native in the Native South and talks through some issues that some listeners may find familiar and others. This may be the first time they've thought about Choctaw people in the South. So we welcome all, wherever you're at, you can start here. All right, so to begin to both of you, why is it important that people currently living in the South, perhaps a lot of non-Natives, learn and think about and know Native history and Native nations and Native cultures from, of, and attached to this area? And I open it up to either one of you. It's important that people in the South realize that they are living on Native land. And the importance of that Native history and how it even informs their lives today. And by ignoring it or not knowing or never have thought of Indians before, you really, if you're a mainstream person, you've really cut yourself out of hundreds and hundreds of years of the experiences of people who came before. So I think it's actually uh, harmful to your health in, in ways that maybe people haven't thought about. Um, for instance, um, the landscape, the, the soils, the, the, the relationship between uh, flood, flooding, and those kinds of issues are something that natives dealt with long before Europeans came, but if you know nothing about that, you're, you're vulnerable in ways that you may not even realize. 
So that's why I think it's important. Mm-hmm. I, you know, one of the things that I think about this is um, really informed by my work on Leanne's work and thinking about things that she said. Um, the story of colonialism has always been how did the Europeans influence the indigenous people? But you know, what I think indigenous studies is doing for us today is asking us, well, how did the indigenous people affect Europeans? So if you think about Jace Weaver's The Red Atlantic and the question, would the potato famine have happened had the indigenous people not introduced the potatoes to Europeans, right? Those kinds of things are really interesting to think about. Um, Leanne has really, I think, forced me, and, and, and I get really excited about this, to think about what is it about Southern culture that is indigenous? How are we as Americans, how, what have we learned from indigenous people and how did it change those of us who were, um, are descended from colonists? Um, and of course, what does that mean for everybody living in the South or in the United States today? And then the other thing, I don't want to start with removal because that's often the story of the South, but I do want to comment on removal because I've been teaching a class that deals with removal and I think that going to that story and then going back from that story is really helpful because people think they know something about removal when in fact they know very little about it and then they realize how much more there is and they want to know more at least that's been the experience i've had with my students and to that end leanne i mean you've done a lot of creative and critical work and how do you see those two informing each other or how do you see your novels and your creative work and your poetry forwarding this history or these also political concerns and these very real material concerns what does your creative work bring story my work is both creatively and critically is informed by story so what does that mean and and how to think about that is that For instance, the work I'm doing now is informed by stories of native Christians that that go out as missionaries. What was their life about? And and in in the southeast, this is something that's well known and well talked about, but you don't see it in contemporary fiction. So that's a story and I follow it with research. So if I wasn't able to do any research on um, on these things, I think that would that would impact the story that I want to tell. So I start with the story. I do a lot of research as as for my critical work, and then it, it it's plowed into the creative work that I need to do. This historical moment, right. the thing that catches your eye, and you say, "There's a story there." Right. And where does it go? And what can, where can I take it? Well, and so with, I know you've taught Leanne's work a lot. Mm-hmm. You've read everything. How does it help you when you read the creative work? What does it do for you? How do you use it to teach and to talk to students? Some of your students are Eastern band. They may be familiar with histories. Some students who have never thought about this. You said students think they know about removal. It turns out they know very little. How does something like a novel like Shell Shaker help them get at the truth of something through the creative work? Yeah, I, well, you know, I'm a literature professor, but I'm also coming from a cultural studies background and approach. 
Um, so shell shaker, for example, I teach in the class on removal, and it's it's a shift for us because we're in North Carolina. I'm teaching a lot of Cherokee works, and we're thinking a lot about Cherokee removal because that's where we are, and that's what we need to think about. But shell shaker opens up the door to, hey, what about these other tribes? And again, very often the conversation is, oh, I didn't know they were removed. And suddenly the students, you know, they're researched. Yeah, I got a ton of presentations on Seminoles because they just had no idea. You know, they're like, hey, this Osceola guy, wow. You know, and so it's fantastic that they're going and finding that out and realizing there are so many of those stories and they had no idea. They thought there was this one, this one thing. So that novel works in that way. Miko King's works very well to talk about the Allotment Act and to talk about relationships between African Americans and Native Americans. I mean, at this conference, we've heard a lot of people talking about the vehicle for change uh, and vehicle for changes. And I think that that's the, that is the essence of what Native literature does. It not only opens up people to our history and that we're alive and well in the 21st century, not completely well, but uh, at least alive. And over the decades that I've been teaching, I can't tell you how many times people have said, oh, I thought you were all dead. And so um, that hasn't changed all that much. And I, I think about the South, to go back to your original question, the South would not be the South without Native cultures informing Southerners. How did they do that? By hosting Natives offered refuge, fed people uh, for, you know, a hundred years not really, more like 70, 80 years, we certainly uh, fed the foreigners who were here in beginning in the 1690s, 1699. Really, we fed and helped and protected. And this is part of Southern culture, to feed, to offer um, refuge. I mean, the South is known for this, but it's also native culture that really really gave this landscape its moral compass and um, that's not to take anything away from the people who've come that's just the way that the culture worked and now what's beautiful about that is the culture continues to work so when I look around at the south I think that that the culture is a reflection of us as native people as chickasaw and as choctaw and and all the other tribes as southeastern tribes the culture itself reflects something that we gave and now i think southerners also give so it it it's a southern life way so to speak and that those things are beautiful and and reflective of of who we all are and i think it's yeah that's i mean the south at its best is that i mean at its best at its best <laughs> and then that's not true it is not always at its best, best. no but when we are our best selves yeah we're doing things that were learned from native people and really yeah thousands the, the, of the years, years and yeah. the, the land 
taught people how to be. And so, yes, well, that's, the same could be said for Indians. We're not always at our best, you know. <laughs> this is not always our highest self. So, you know, it's, it's, it's human, human, human nature. But because we were here for a long time, I think it's very important. In Chop Talking on Other Realities, Leanne, you talk about this concept of tribalography. And I think it's just a brilliant concept. And I know, Kirsten, you've talked a lot about Leanne's use of this term. And so I just want to talk about what is tribalography? How do we understand it? And what does it do? How has it been useful in your work, in your life, in your critical work? What does it allow us to see and think about that otherwise hasn't been seen or thought about? Well, Leanne talks about this essay that came out about in 2001, I think it was, The That's Story of America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, she ta- it's, fa- it's a fascinating essay because she goes into the whole history of the Haudenosaunee uh, Confederacy and the way that they influenced the founding fathers of the United States. And so she talks about story and the way that natives tell stories. And she talks about this bringing together um, the past, present, and future milieu. I'm actually quoting you there. Um, and natives and non-natives, and um, and a connection to to the land. And so, in the end, and if you, and so the cool thing that's happened over the last, gosh, I don't know, maybe ten years, is a lot of scholars, native studies scholars, have started trying to figure out how you use tribalography as methodology. For a long time, I referred to it as an aesthetic because I thought, oh, this is about the way that natives tell stories. Um, but there's a way you can apply this, and that's what folks have been doing in, in Native uh, critical studies. I thought about this for a long time about, I was trying to identify for non-Indians and non-Indian scholars, what is it about Native literature that makes us um, both transnational and, um, and helps us as we have tried to help newcomers that have come to this land. What is the ingredient that made that possible? And again, it comes back to story, but the fact that that natives always, 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 native literature, native people are always adding to their story. The method is the addition that you're making meaning by adding white people, black people, uh, red people, um, yellow, brown, it doesn't matter. The, the, the fact that we are constantly adding to our story because we have met new people, that, that makes us constantly a people who are adaptable, adapt, adapting, and um, open additions um, make equations. And so tribalography tries to make equations of the additions that are coming, all of the changes that are happening in story. So if you look at a, a native novel, you will always have people from um, all different countries, uh, all different religions, we don't exclude or cut people off. Now, juxtapose that with a 
non-native contemporary novel. We're nowhere in that story. We actually don't exist. Hence, people think we're dead. Um, look at take take anybody's work, but an author that you really love. We're still as native people. We're nowhere in that story. We don't exist. We're invisible. Um, I think, um, I'm thinking about this class that I taught last fall. It was called American Indian Women Writers. And I think there's a temptation sometimes when, when non-native scholars who have no familiarity with native studies would look at something like Shell Shaker. I'm also thinking of Deborah Miranda's Bad Indians because I taught that. I taught it alongside Miko Kings. And the thing, I think that some folks might say, oh, that's postmodern pastiche because you're pulling all these things in there. And the problem with that is this complete lack of understanding, acknowledgement, or desire to know or understand um, anything about these cultures and the way stories have traditionally been told or that there is a literary tradition. They have those qualities that you don't find in mainstream literature. We're absent. And so I... I I began to think about what we do naturally as just storytellers and people uh, and why other kinds of literatures exclude natives from the story. In fact, they exclude native history from the story of America. And that's really the impetus for writing that. And it's also uh, one thing leads to another. And that's how I think that the thing I'm interested in right now is that's how uh, our people looked at the at the weather patterns. Well, and I think too, it almost it's something in in the hard sciences or in mathematics. The best equation should be able to account for the most variables, right? right? And right. if you have a theory or an equation and it can't account for the addition of something and it can't answer that, you either have two options: pretend that other data doesn't exist because you want to save your equation, or say, maybe this isn't the right equation, and we need to figure out something that it can account. So we've been talking a lot the last few days about this idea of the Native South. It seems complicated, hard to define. It encompasses a lot of things. But I know, Leanne, you had mentioned in kind of some correspondence we had before about as opposed to the global South and as opposed to all of these other connectivities. How do you think people right now are thinking of the Native South and where can it take us, both as a term that encompasses so many people, but not lose tribal specificity, which is incredibly important for nationalism and citizenship. I think the Native South is a, a fiction in and of itself. I think that because it lacks, maybe it lacks a Southeastern, um, component. It's the South. Well, yeah, the South is many things, but the, the Southeastern South, uh, our original homelands, uh, are places in which Native people 
believe we still have purview over, or the land still ca causes us to return. But I, I'm, I'm not sure in the academic sense how folks are defining Native South, and then, and then what does that mean when people say the Global South? Um, and I, I frankly am confused by that. I also think, are you looking at colonialism worldwide? Is that what you really mean when you say the global south, how, how we were colonized, removed, taken from our mothers, um, uh, and placed somewhere else? Is that what you mean by the global south? That, you know, colonizers can do that all over the world? I'm, you know, and I'm not sure I'm the right person to answer that because I don't have an answer for how complex that meaning is. Um, the Native South and, uh, and Southeast in particular, I know a little bit more about. I know our story, but I'm not sure that's what is meant. I, I find it's something I'm really concerned about, how we're defining it and what we're doing with the definition. Um, in the the book that I've been working on about Leanne, I one of the things that I do at the beginning is try to look at how people have defined it. So I don't know that I like the term. It's institutionalized, though. There's a journal, an interdisciplinary mm -hmm. journal, yeah, Native yeah. South, and they defined it as, and I'm going, going to paraphrase because I don't remember exactly, but um, basically the people f whose ancestral homelands are the South, wherever they may be at this point. So you can talk about Native South, and you can talk about someone like Thomas King in Canada, um, who's Cherokee. Um, so there's that. Um, but other scholars have tried to limit the definition and say, no, the Native South is only those indigenous people still remaining in the South. I personally find that definition to be really problematic because what did, and Leanne, I get this from her, but it's, of course, you can read it in lots of things, but she talks about, in an interview we did in Mellis, the Choctaws picking up handfuls of Mississippi dirt and carrying it with them to Oklahoma. They literally took the land with them. And so, okay, now what, what does that mean? The South got transplanted, but the South, the the problem I have with the term is the South usually refers to what we think of as the Confederacy. So that is a colonial construct, right? So Southeastern seems more appropriate uh, if we're going to talk about it geographically. I think the Chickasaws are a great model and, and for this idea of the Native South. And certainly my colleague um, Jody Bird would, would be very keen to, to remind folks that the Chickasaws have decided to buy back their homelands one acre at a time. Wow. And they're doing it. They're also building a museum. Uh, they're very much involved in that idea of returning to Mississippi. And they were in the northern part of the state and the Choctaws were in the south. And then you had a lot of other tribes that were small um, living in our proximity uh, the Humas, um, the uh, Chakchiumas, the Chittimachas, um, all of these things are important, but they're very undefined, I think, in, in this term of the Native South, because the, our history is so complicated. The history is so dark with, oh, you can't be part of the South 
you you don't live there anymore. Well, whose fault is that? So you don't get to make those distinctions if you're trying to be inclusive, which I think some some people are exclusive again. They're trying to exclude and pretend that you can keep us out. And and isn't that just too bad? Yeah. It cuts off your own world. Right. think and this is separate but related I really think that if you know that your family and, and of course people who know they have a family history of slavery some people have just made reparations because they feel they need to and this is something for me teaching this class on removal particularly in North Carolina you know I know some degree of my family history and I have an ancestor who fought in the American Revolution who who basically uh, migrated the family to Kentucky after one of the treaties with the Cherokee. And it couldn't have happened until then. What I think is crazy is that I grew up in Kentucky. And I mean, you grew up in North Carolina, so you had a real awareness of native people. There's a federally recognized tribe. There are numerous state recognized tribes. Kentucky has no federally recognized tribes. And yet that land would not be that land had it not been for several treaties with the Cherokees. And of course, it's a historic hunting ground of the Shawnee. There are the, all these salt licks, the Buffalo Trace. I mean, it is a place so rich with native history, but it's but the conversation is absent it's absolutely absent and except for everybody's got a cherokee relative yeah <laughs> well that gets you to know? something else we should talk about actually which is why tribal specificity and citizenship right is important well and now there's this well as you were talking about this idea that because of casinos tribes suddenly have a lot of money so now there are so many more applications for and you know enrollment because people think they can get a hold of some of that money which is, as you pointed out, not silly. <laughs> yeah. It's just silly. And they're really not even asking for enrollment. They're just asking for a handout. Can you give me some money? Give me some money. Give me some money. Give me some money. Okay. Well, and also, I mean, I know there was just an article that came out about this about, and this is something I think a lot of us in Native Studies have said before, that Cherokee princesses are also about white people attempting to indigenize their whiteness to the southeast. Yeah, it alleviates guilt. It it short sir, shortcuts any investment in the land that somehow now it's just transcendent because it's in your blood. fictional blood, right? But there is also a distinction. I think being from North Carolina, particularly in Eastern North Carolina, with communities, particularly what were labeled as Black communities in the South, that may have been Native communities, but some white bureaucrat at some point it's either white or non-white at some point in this in the south right and so i think that there are also complications when you look at black identity and native identity in the south particularly i'm thinking eastern seaboard north carolina tribal peoples where someone else just comes in and makes a determination of non-white therefore black therefore african-american and it's another way to just simplify and erase and ignore people's stories about themselves that is not the same as the Cherokee princess. You know, like I always try to, when I'm talking to people about this, I'm like, we really have two separate issues going on here. Always in the service of landed white supremacy. 
Indian removal simplified things in the South for the production of cotton and for all sorts of things. Um, and it was never, it was never that simple of a story. Um, but there were so many state and federally sanctioned and people in positions of power, you know, bureaucrats who were moving to make this happen. Yeah, right. And so there's that layer. Then there's the, the plain old, my grandmother was a Cherokee Indian princess. You know, that's a story. And I get that story a lot. Just people come up and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm Indian too. Okay. Yeah, whatever. But it also, um, you know, it's dangerous, too. I think, as Leanne, you had, you've talked about, I mean, it has material implications when people apply for, I think one of your examples that maybe I'll ask you to talk about is, say you're applying for a scholarship that's supposed to go to someone of certain citizenry, and then you claim this, in any other context, we'd recognize that as absurd. It's so, it's so problematic because... Um, Typically in these situations, so people are asked to self-identify and then they're taken at their word. People will choose to self-identify as Native American without tribal enrollment or proof of it. I, I don't think, I could be totally wrong about this, but I don't think people um, who are more than likely white, and, and that's obviously a fraught term as well, um, check African American. Um, but Native American will get them something as we've talked about and the thing is I mean even you know people get jobs I mean this is a huge controversy in American Indian studies people get jobs claim to be American That's Indian right <laughs> it just makes me crazy right and and no one has asked for verification because they're taking them at their word and so the implications become huge material there are real material implications of this and and then native people who are enrolled are you know are hurt by those sorts of situations. So the job goes to someone who's not, who's passing as native, who is not enrolled, and they are taking it their word because why? I'm really glad Gina's giving us a very public forum to have this conversation because I do feel like these are the kinds of conversations that happen at Native Studies conferences or conferences where people are really talking about these issues, but publicly we hardly ever have these conversations unless you know, a new Lone Ranger movie comes out and then pretty soon everybody's interviewing you and asking you about Tonto, right? Oh. But you know what I'm saying? You, you, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the occasion when it happens, um, often. Or, you know, another writer makes a mistake about thinking they're writing about one thing and they don't know what the hell they're writing about. Um, I know J.K. Rowling had, had no. used a story and, and she talked about the myth of... of the myths of native people and it was just kind of an absurd moment and i thought oh no stick to what you know uh, no i know i it's like oh my gosh and i uh, somebody interviewed me from national geographic about about her and i you know i was like oh it's just typical right you know also make her answer for her right you don't know, come to me why do native i mean we do this with a lot of like ethnic minorities in this country but why do you have to answer for J.K. Rowling's mistakes? <laughs> mistakes. It's right. not your responsibility. <laughs> you are writing your own work. Like, if you have any questions about that, I'd be happy to take them, you know? I mean, but also the way that she has, in the a lot of the public media, 
Native people are vocal, and Native people will tell you what they think, and they talk back. And then people like J.K. Rowling shut down and will respond to fans on Twitter about all sorts of things. But she's blocking Native Studies scholars who are asking her to account for herself. And I wouldn't so much have a problem for it if she was just Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) But she's not. She's not. And she tends to parade herself as particularly progressive and liberal. About everything but Natives. Well, she just won't have the conversation. And I think, how progressive are you if you just... You know what? Just say I was wrong. Right. I didn't and know. I, I didn't know. I made a mistake. I'm willing to learn. Right. The end and everybody shuts up. What do each of you want to see as the future for Native people of, from the South? Well, I can say what I would like to happen is for, as part of the Native Southeast or Native South, I'd like to see a lot more conferences in which we like this, but not just centered around Faulkner, because he writes very little about Natives, really, and their stereotypes in his fiction, but I would like to see a lot more conferences around uh, Native and non-Native issues in the South, both historically, contemporary uh, issues, certainly um, the, the people who stayed behind, the reservation systems, how the South is shaped. I mean, I would really like to see that kind of thing continue in the future in a way that is not being done now. You know, I think these conversations are important. I think right now we're at a point where we're not even really sure how to get going or say what is the Native South. I mean, we're still having really seminal conversations. Um, What I want to see happen from those conversations is more teaching in the classroom. I've been talking to different people who are at universities in the South, like Deborah Miranda, Drew Lopenzina, um, you know, all the folks in, you know, Georgia, you all, and Jeanette, and people teaching Native Lit and Native Studies, and I'm really curious about those experiences um, because I think I think a lot of folks, particularly folks who teach Southern Lit, aren't comfortable teaching Native literature. I'd like to see Native literature get into more Southern Lit classes, but just broadly, more people teaching Native Lit in the South. Something, the conversations that will continue into the 21st century, I think, around these issues. And as we, as a country, are mired in um, stories of immigration. Oh, what are we doing? oh, immigrants are bad, Um, if they had a foundation into and a a way to look at uh, historic America, they'd realize that the the humor and the fallacy and the tragedy of thinking that immigration is something that started now. And so that's a way in which native, native, Native literature Native stories, uh, Native history helps Americans be better uh, prepared in the 21st century to talk about even immigration. So these kinds of these kinds of conversations are very important. Mm-hmm. I really uh, hope that 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 
that my vision of the future is that we will have this kind of conversation academically and intellectually with the citizenry of the quote-unquote Native South. We'd like to thank Leanne Howe and Kirsten Squint for sitting down this week for this excellent discussion. Likewise, we'd like to thank Jay Watson and everyone at the University of Mississippi for a very productive Faulkner and Yaktapatafa conference on Faulkner and the Native South. Please visit our website, aboutsouthpodcast.com, to learn more about Leanne Howe's work, as well as find links to where you can acquire your own copy of Shell Shaker, Miko Kings, Chalk Talking on Other Realities, or Seeing Red. About South is brought to you each week from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines is co-producer. Music is by Brian Horton. Please visit his website at brianhorton.com. And please subscribe to About South on your preferred podcast platform. Next week, we are talking to Michael Bibbler about the B-52s. So brush up on your love shack, and we'll see you next week. Next week.